This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on suicide risk management. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Suicide is a leading cause of death in young people. It accounts for about 20% of deaths in 20 to 34-year-olds in the UK. Many people experience suicidal thoughts, but suicide is not inevitable. With the right support, people can find their way through a suicidal crisis and recover. So how can we support people who are suicidal? To tell us, we have on the line Dr. Alice Cole-King, who is Clinical Director of For Mental Health and Consultant Liaison Psychiatrist in North Wales. And importantly, Alice is also author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Alice, you're welcome. Let's start by asking you to tell us about suicide risk management. Well, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that actually we've all been touched by suicide in some way, whether as a professional or in our own lives. It is an emotional subject, and you've probably never even had a safety warning as part of a BMJ podcast. But actually, if this discussion does bring up difficult feelings, I hope that you will seek support and take practical steps to help yourself. Because actually, suicide is not just about our patients. It's not just about other people. You know, it's actually about ourselves and the people we care about, too. I think it's worth reminding ourselves that somebody dies by suicide somewhere between 30 and 40 seconds. So that means that during the time of this podcast, that approximately 30 people might lose their life to suicide around the world, with thousands more affected. So we used to think that about six people were adversely affected by each suicide, but actually work done by Professor Julie Sorrell and her colleagues have shown that this is likely to be closer to 135. And actually, I wonder whether if it is the loss of somebody, um, a doctor or another healthcare professional, whether even more people are affected because of the people we touch in our lives. Um, So to come back to your question, suicide risk management is quite a generic term, but it refers to the process of identifying, assessing, and our our clinical response and our interventions that we do when we see a patient at risk of suicide. Um, And as you mentioned, in terms of the BMJ best practice, we actually bring in the term suicide risk mitigation because the term risk management can actually bring fear into a clinician because it's almost like we we fear that we unless we manage this person's suicide risk forever, that we have perhaps in some way failed. You know, if only we'd done our job properly, if, if only we'd done the right things. And I think that one of the big barriers actually is clinicians' fear. And, and I'm so glad that you said in the introduction that suicide is not inevitable. And in fact, the WHO report from 2014, you know, actually says the words that that suicides are preventable. You're right. The other thing is that suicidal thoughts are far more common 
that they're not necessarily related to having a mental illness. Um, we do need to take suicidal thought seriously. I suppose it's best thought of as a behaviour rather than a diagnosis. But we do know that certain things that as a clinician that we can do absolutely do make a difference. And, and the tragedy is we'll never know how many patients' lives we've saved. As a clinician, every day around the world, thousands of thousands of people are being seen assessed and helped successfully, but we just won't necessarily know if somebody, if we've stopped somebody, go on um, to die by suicide. I suppose one of the key things in terms of suicide risk management is actually that the, the new research which makes it really clear that actually we cannot accurately predict suicide at the individual level. And I think that's one of the problems, that there is this fallacy that people spend the majority of the assessment trying to characterise, to quantify the risk, to predict the risk. But then the problem is that they may allocate care or not allocate care or a response according to risk prediction, which is flawed. And certainly now, academics are calling for us to change the way, to almost have a paradigm shift. So instead of trying to, in an ineffective way, predict risk at the individual level, that we take a much more holistic, universal almost like a population-based approach where we go for early identification of distress and when suicidal thoughts are emerging, that we give effective care to those people who may be at elevated risk. But obviously, as we go on through this podcast, we'll talk, there are some people that are at very much heightened risk that they, mean they need a particular intervention. Okay, thank you, thank you. And Tell us more details about assessing uh, suicide risk. This might sound so basic, but it's it's absolutely spot on. That tragically, you know, sometimes we don't even ask. There's a huge proliferation of the most amazing research in this field. And I know it's an under-researched area, but certainly in the last five years, there's a lot more academic knowledge. But the problem is that we have a, a gulf between the, the best available knowledge and research and actually then your average treatment as usual. So we've got a real problem in translating research findings into clinical practice, but also actually of de-implementation. You know, we're still doing things that we know are not effective and we know that they don't work. You know, in terms of recent advances in the rest of healthcare, we are really better understanding the science of how clinicians and doctors make mistakes, the science of human factors and human errors. And I think in suicide, there's still a lot we don't know about, you know, patient barriers, about clinician barriers and organisational barriers. As I said, sometimes we're not even asking. But actually, given some recent research about how doctors themselves are struggling, I almost think, you know, is it any wonder? 
and I think it was just literally this week that BMJ Open have published an article, and I know it's only a cross-sectional survey. We can't prove that it was causation, but it did show that excessive workload seemed to be related to suicidal thoughts in doctors. We also know that there's a lot of research going on now regarding the impact of stress, burnout, compassion fatigue. And you see all of these things will actually influence if doctors ask and how they ask. So one of the key advances now is our knowledge about the link between self-harm and suicide. And I think in the past, perhaps we haven't taken self-harm seriously enough. And there's a host of research around the world, but certainly in the UK, um, one of our most recent publications for the National Confidential Inquiry, which looks at people who died by suicide after, after they had been seen by specialist services. We know now that 90% of young women who died by suicide had previously self-harmed. We also know that sadly, self-harm rates do appear to be increasing and it's not just in, increasing in the UK. We know that certainly the risk of repetition of self-harm unfortunately remains elevated after the index episode of self-harm. And in fact, that heightened time of risk or repetition is straight after the self-harm, but it actually does persist. We know that sometimes people actually change method, which is why you can't make simplistic judgments. But also it's worth getting this in perspective because the majority of people who self-harm won't die by suicide, but we have to take it seriously. So, you know, we don't even know how many people self-harm because it is still largely a hidden problem, and that's partly because of stigma. So, Alice, tell us about common pitfalls in assessing suicide risk. The commonest pitfall is actually not asking because we know that quite often, and research has shown this, that clinicians don't always ask. But when they do ask, I think one of the problems then that we have to overcome is that patients don't always disclose. And there are lots of different reasons for this, and that might be stigma, shame, embarrassment, fear. But actually, sometimes practitioners don't believe. And that may be simply because practitioners don't feel that they have the skills or the confidence or the resources to respond. I do think another issue, which again is an issue around the world, is that sometimes still people still try to predict risk and they will allocate someone as being high risk or medium risk or, or low risk. And of course then that they allocate care to the wrong people. I think that still there is a problem in not listening to families and we are now learning the importance of lived experience. So lived experience of the person with suicidal thoughts after a suicide attempt or self-harm or indeed their families. I think there's still a lot of silo working and sadly some people still use risk sales to predict self-harm and there is no evidence. I mean, for example, most risk scales have got a positive predictive value of about 5%. But actually that means that they're wrong about 95% of the time. 
So we know that we should stop using these risk scales to predict. I guess that's maybe an example of de-implementation that you mentioned earlier. Is there anything else that we're doing wrong that we should de-implement? Yeah, and you see, it's really interesting because with, with risk scales, they can be useful because it can guide a clinician to know what to ask. And I think that we, we've got to be very careful that people don't stop assessing. If anything, our assessment has to be more diligent, more thorough, but we change the emphasis. So instead of assessing to predict risk, we assess to understand. So it's almost like we need to change the emphasis of the assessment so that it's compassionate, collaborative, very diligent, that the clinician tries to assess every single risk factor but we assess in order to intervene. And the whole, the whole reason for this is that in order to make a difference, we need to understand our patient's experience. We need to be able to formulate their risk. We need to understand their needs, their assets, their strengths. And then together, we collaboratively make an intervention plan so that either you know, we remove the risk and if we can't remove it, well, can we reduce it? And if we can't reduce it, well, can we mitigate it? And that would be by the addition of a brand new protective factor. And it's almost like we need to get to the ethos of no stone unturned, where they, in absolute good faith, do their best to help their patient not want to end their life today to not want to end their life this week, this month. I mean, clearly some of the actions are what the clinician will do, following a biopsychosocial approach, and some of them are maybe what the patient and their families or supporters can do. So, Alice, uh, you mentioned simplistic judgments. Give me an example of what could be a simplistic judgment in this context. Well, and, and my, an example would be somebody who perhaps was either not very experienced or not very confident in the field of working with patients at risk of suicide might take undue emphasis perhaps from the, from the method of self-harm. But actually, it's more about the patient's distress. It's more about their intent at the time. So somebody may take an overdose of a certain number of, of tablets believing that that would end their life. But a simplistic approach would be thinking, oh, well, that's not that many tablets. But actually, if the patient thought that that would end their life, then we have to take that very seriously. And I think, you know, the bottom line is we have to take all self-harm seriously. That every episode of self-harm still needs a full assessment and to look at that person's you know, what we can do to help them so that actually they, they don't feel the need to self-harm in the future. Okay, thank you. Tell us about the management of patients at risk of suicide. Well, I think it starts initially, um, you know, with compassion. And I think that we can underestimate the importance of compassion. And I would say that any doctor who wonders if it has a role in suicide prevention, they've obviously had a very blessed or lucky life. Because anybody who's faced difficulty, life events or illness will know that often compassion and hope 
are the first things that actually make a difference. And certainly for our patients, that might be the invisible thread that helps them hold on to life. But certainly, you know, the goal, as I said, is a very detailed assessment, but then a management plan or a mitigation plan where you, the, together and collaboratively, because a risk assessment cannot really be done to someone. To be effective, it must be done with someone. And then there are key things we know that a clinician needs to do. And there are various names for this, but basically it's a plan that you make with your patient of how they will cope next time they feel suicidal or next time they become distressed, how to navigate these difficult feelings. Some people call them safety plans. Sometimes they're known as crisis plans or crisis response plans. Okay. I guess part of it must be about managing the underlying condition as well, at least some of the time. Absolutely. But again, you know, we used to think that it was just enough to manage the underlying condition. But actually, the evidence is that when somebody is suicidal, that you need specific interventions targeted specifically at their suicidal thoughts, as well as the general condition, whether that would be a mental illness whether that would be substance misuse or whether that would be a physical problem or pain. It's like you need both. Okay, great. Thank you. Tell us about common pitfalls in the management of patients at at high risk of suicide. Well, I think one of them, perhaps, I think one of them, which again is used around the world, is no suicide contracts. There is no evidence for their use. There's even evidence that they may cause harm um, and I would urge people to to stop using those, but it doesn't mean that you don't do something instead. Instead, it would make more sense to make a safety plan. And one of the key components of a safety plan is explicit removal of access to lethal means for suicide. And not wishing to to underestimate the importance of other things, but actually if your patient has no access to lethal means, they will stay alive. I mean, clearly, they need far more than just that. But we know that suicidal thoughts wax and wane. You know, normally that heightened suicidal impulse, the one that is strong enough to make someone end their life, is often short-term or situation-specific. And if we can help keep people alive during that time, we can then work with them when 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 the situation has calmed down. Another key important thing is making sure that someone has adequate social and emotional support. So that would be contact, social contacts, but also to know clear and straightforward ways to come back to healthcare if required, but also self-soothing strategies, calming strategies and distraction strategies. Okay, thank you. And you, you say that suicide contracts don't work. Can you tell us what exactly are suicide contracts? Well, it's just when you get the patient to promise that they won't um, try and end their life. All it does is it drives risk underground. It makes the patient feel they dare admit it. And we know that even just the way you ask a patient about if they're experiencing suicidal thoughts, that actually influences whether they tell you or not. Because you, if you ask in a negative way, saying things like, oh, you're not having suicidal thoughts, are you? They're far less likely to acknowledge that they are than if you say, how is the future looking? You know, have you had thoughts of harming yourself? Have you had thoughts of ending your life? 
So these subtle things, although they might seem subtle, make a huge difference. And also sometimes clinicians are so fearful that they don't know what to do or they feel they don't have the resources that, you know, you, you can hear sometimes perhaps of people who almost don't believe their patients. And it's almost the soonest we stop arguing with our patients that they are that suicidal, that they are that distressed. If you allow patients to talk about their reasons for dying and compassionately and you validate it, then that earns you the right to talk about reasons for living and how together you can make a plan for a way forward. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned preventing access to lethal means. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, so a really good example is what the doctor can do. Because when we prescribe, we have to be very mindful about where that medication will be kept. So if I was seeing someone that I was very worried about, I would prescribe a small amount of medication. If for any reason that's not possible, then the medication can be locked away, the key could be given to someone else or hidden somewhere or locked away. So you put in barriers, you put in interruptions. Another good example would be to remove alcohol from sight or just for a short while for your patient to agree that they just won't drink. It could be that there are other barriers put in place. Um, on a population level, that removal of access to means has got the greatest evidence base. And although I can't tell you the name of an RCT yet because it's not yet been done, there seems to be consensus that actually this population-based approach seemed practical to, to try on an individual level. And certainly a safety plan is one way of making sure that the clinician doesn't forget. And if they're a very busy clinician or they're not feeling very confident, they can find information on very practical and sensible ways to remove or reduce access to means on the StayingSafe.net website, which obviously um, is mentioned in the BMJ Best Practice. Okay, thank you. That's, that's great. Uh, last question. What have we missed? What common questions are you asked by doctors regarding suicide risk management that we haven't covered? I think one of the problems is that very experienced clinicians may think that they don't need training, that they think they know how to take a detailed clinical assessment. But actually, <clears throat> it's almost a skill in its own right. I do think that sometimes there is an over-reliance on a medication-only approach when, in fact, these psychosocial interventions may be as effective. Obviously, treat any underlying mental illness, obviously, but sometimes we have to do that and more. I do think sometimes people are admitted to hospital without a clear plan. There is a very... You know, certainly patients sometimes value a short period away so they can have intensive psychosocial support, have a very detailed assessment, but we can't just rely on being in a hospital. And certainly in terms of the National Confidential Inquiry, we've seen that sadly people do die by suicide after discharge and, and the commonest day is the third day after discharge. So we do need to think differently about the way that an inpatient treatment is in terms of the whole patient approach, that other things post-discharge are required as well. 
Okay, thank you very much, Alice, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in this podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other important illnesses. Thank you once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.